Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein's Washington, D.C. policy directors Brian Wilde, Drew Littman, and Brian McGuire join strategic advisor Senator Mark Begich to discuss tax reform efforts, including the roles of Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Democrats, the current political landscape, whether it will be a tax reform or tax cuts, dynamic scoring, and the impact of the Finance Committee roster. Welcome back to another podcast. Uh, Brownstein hosts these on a regular basis to give you a little sense of what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, today we're going to talk uh, to three colleagues on tax reform. We have Brian Wild, policy director at Brownstein, has over two decades of experience in Washington. During that time, he has worked at the White House in both the House and Senate and in the private sector. A highly regarded Republican advisor, Brian represents a broad range of business and trade associations and manages extensive public affairs campaigns and provides policy advisory and strategy on energy, tax, labor, transportation, and health care issues. Also, we have Drew Littman, policy director, previously served as Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislation, policy, and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer, four of those years as policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as a senior counsel to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Burwell. And last, we have Brian McGuire, policy director, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's chief of staff, where he advised on strategic communication, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate leadership office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for the NRSC during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election and as a speechwriter for the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development under Bush. His writing has appeared in publications including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico. Thank you all three for being here. And uh, again, to our listeners, it gives you a sense of the, the breadth of experience that Brownstein has. And today, tax reform is kind of the subject matter. But I have to say, you know, when I was reading your bio again, Brian, and Jeff Flake's 2012 election. Uh, so here we are as we're getting ready for a tax reform. We have three members who aren't going to or are there but are leaving. Uh, and strange being depends on when all that happens. I think that's happening next month, the election. And uh, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake. We have the number one priority, it seems, of the president as tax reform, no matter what. And we have an end of the year coming very quickly. Uh, again, to uh, Brian McGuire, give me your your thoughts here on, you know, you work for Mitch McConnell. How is he managing this with time limitations and members kind of fighting with the president and members who say, I'm not going to be here, who might be more freelancer than before? What's that dynamic that's building as you move on, in theory, the president's number one priority and the Republican Party number one priority, at least? I think he views his primary responsibility here as pushing through all the distractions that arise in the course of the days um, and making sure that his members are focused on the one goal that matters, which is getting this tax bill signed and on the or passed and signed by the president by the end of the year. The um, 1986 tax reform took 13 months. There are about six weeks left to get this done, so the timeline here is extremely compressed. But that notwithstanding, there is you know a fairly high degree of confidence that Republicans can come together and get this done. Do you think uh, to, to to Drew? Um, where are the 
I mean, the Democrats are kind of watching this this changing dynamic, and I, and I agree with Brian. I mean, the leader, McConnell, is not really in the public eye on all this spat that's going back and forth. He's kind of just churning through and trying to figure out how to get this all done. What are the Democrats doing? Are they just kind of waiting in the wings, hoping that it fails, so then they're part of the process? Because as you know, this is designed by uh, reconciliation, so they just need 50 plus one. What, what's, what do you think the thinking is? And I know that as I sit here with the three of you, one of the things Brownstein, the firm, does a lot of is you're out there every day talking to folks informally, informally, trying to understand the dynamics so we give the right advice to our clients. But what, what's, what do you think the Democrats are thinking or hoping to do, I guess. Well, Mark, I've talked to uh, chiefs of staff to four Democratic senators on on the finance committee and asked how Democrats are participating in in tax bill negotiations or drafting. And the reactions ran from um, chuckling to eye rolling to just a snorting noise, but, but really didn't get any more verbal than that. But when pressed... They would say we're on the sidelines. We're not involved in the process. Um, Is that by design or by design of the Republicans or designed by the Democrats or a combo maybe? I, I think the Democrats would say it's by design by Republicans. But Democrats uh, drew a line um, so that it would be clear why they're not participating. And that line was expressed in the form of a letter that Senator Schumer sent to the president and Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan. So the Democrats said, here are our preconditions. Don't increase taxes on the middle class. Don't cut taxes for the top 1%. Move a bill in regular order, that is with 60 votes, not through reconciliation. Do not increase the deficit. Do not cut Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. There were three Democrats in the Senate who did not sign that letter. Senator Manchin from West Virginia, Senator Donnelly from Indiana, and Senator Heidkamp from North Dakota. So, Who were invited to the White House at one point. In, indeed, and not coincidentally. So um, three who are up for re-election in states that Trump won and might be open to a deal. Otherwise, the Democrats don't see common ground. The other Democrats, the other 45 Democrats. And also, I think in the background, there's a sense that if a bill doesn't advance, then Trump has struck out. For the, he's O for the year, in a sense. And um, politically, I think that puts Republicans in a corner. Um, I'm not saying it's the main motivator for Democrats, but it's not, um, it's not insignificant. Brian Wild, you, you do a lot of work, as many in the firm do, but a lot with associations, trade associations, businesses, so forth. What are you hearing from them? Are they, because I know one of the top topics we get asked <clears throat> here at the firm is, you know, what's going to happen with tax reform? Because someone, in, even though it may be a, a small firm or big company or an associate, they touch it in some ways. What, what are you hearing from them? Are they optimistic or are they just like, well, we'll see what happens in the future kind of thing? What, what are they what are they saying? So I think a, a lot of that depends on on the makeup of the association and um, and and what they specifically are trying to get out of tax reform. So I, I, I think as a, a whole, they're optimistic um, that this is going to happen. From a, the business community is fairly united in their desire uh, to have lower rates and to be more competitive uh, internationally. Um, right now, a lot of pressures being put on them by Republican leadership to come out even before they know the details and, and support whatever document we end up seeing here in about a week. Um, 
And and I think some of the bigger trade associations, the ones, uh, the U.S. chambers and the business roundtables and the folks that are uh, represent multiple industries uh, are probably going to end up uh, advocating, supporting, spending money um, on the issue campaign side in support of almost whatever document Republicans come out of. Um, I think some of the, the folks uh, on the real estate side – uh, that really care about uh, interest deductibility. I think the S-Corps and the pass-through uh, uh, groups are still going to keep their powder dry and see the details uh, before they decide you know, which side they're going to be on here. Do you think – I think the answer to this is easy. The dynamics between now and 1986, the last time tax reform took place, is, is different, the political environment and so forth. But is the desire um, – you, know, you, you had mentioned, um, Brian McGuire, that it took – 13 months or whatever it was for the last bill um, to come through. And that was, you know, 1986. So are we, are we kind of putting out there to the public this, this hope that there will be tax reform? Or are we really going to be, at the end of the day, just doing some tax cuts and then call it good and go home for the day? Right. In 1986 and the current effort are so different, it's hardly worth comparing yeah, it's, them. It's really um, apples and oranges in a way. <laughs> but just to kind of fill that out a little bit, in 1986, you had a Democrat on the Senate side, Bill Bradley from New Jersey, leading the tax reform effort, and um, 30 Democrats ultimately voted for the final package. Um, there's no expectation that any Democrats will vote for this, even the three who did not sign on to that letter among most of the people I talked to. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that they don't want to be seen as supportive of anything that this president does, and um, which I think is, you know, a risky approach for them to take. If this bill ends up cutting taxes dramatically, if it ends up um, making American businesses more competitive and ensuring that American businesses don't move overseas, as many of them are poised to do right now, um, if it increases the child tax credit dramatically, if it doubles the standard deduction, this is something that, in my view, Democrats and states that Trump won don't want to be on the, uh, the wrong side of. And right now, they seem poised to be on the wrong side of it. So I think that this is... Um, very risky for them politically. You know, whether this is going to be a, a, a robust package or just tax cuts remains to be seen. I know that the leaders in the committees of jurisdiction would like to see as much done as possible, but there's serious limitations on what you can do given the process that's being used. What's, you know, I saw a recent poll and it showed, you know, people want reform, they want tax cuts, but then when you say it's the Trump tax plan, two-thirds say, we don't like it. Now, they may not know anything about it. I don't know the depths of it. Is that the play that some of the Democrats are thinking in this mix, that if they just keep calling it the Trump tax plan, then they don't have to deal with the the political? Because I, I think you're right. In states that are very red and that Trump won, Democrats play a risk game. But is it a branding issue that suddenly, at the end of the day, the substance is irrelevant, but the brand is the, the play here? Well, I think the Republicans are... An- in an unfavorable position because Trump is at a record low in popularity and he keeps insisting on getting a tax cut bill. So so branding it with Trump's name is smart politics. I'm not sure, though, that there's a big red state, blue state divide on this. The people pushing for this cut are 
principally Republican donors and big corporate executives. It's not a big grassroots movement. This isn't going to, this isn't bringing jobs to deindustrialized areas. Nothing like that. The public's very skeptical about that. And I'm sure you've seen polling in the past that indicates that the public generally, when presented with a tax cut proposal, A, believes that believe their taxes won't get cut, and B, even after paying lower taxes, will tell a pollster that their taxes rose. Yeah, right. Uh, It happens (laughs) over and over and over. So I think people have gotten, if there's one thing people have gotten cynical about, it's tax cuts and whether they benefit from them. So I'm not sure there's much much red state exposure, although it's red state senators who are worrying about this. Mm -hmm. I also think that something may have happened in the mid-90s because the 86 cuts are always referred to as the 86 cuts, but the Bush tax cuts are referred to as the Bush tax cuts, and these tax cuts are going to be referred to as the Trump tax cuts. So something happened in the approach to politics. That's a really good point. That's interesting. I also think, I mean, it's called Obamacare because at the time, Republicans labeled it Obamacare because there was a similar poll that said that that made it less favorable. Right. And it's a branding. At, at some point, it, it flipped and Obamacare became popular. Now, we had Republican <laughs> Democrats had to, to lose the majority um, before it became popular. Yes, in, I know in, this. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's the same, same thing. If this, is, if this is Trump tax reform, you know, maybe, maybe it has a dip of, of uh, being unfavorable, effect. but uh, 10 years from now, we'll all be glad. It's an interesting part about the whole, you know, the tax reform issue, because in, in a way, you know, there's also the debate on, and, and, and Drew brought it up, it's, it's interesting to watch. I think in the Obama era, when they did the payroll tax reductions, $300 billion. But if you asked anybody if they got it, I remember when I was in the Senate, I never got a call. Anybody saying thank you for that savings. No one saw it, but then they, I would go to a town hall meeting and they would say, all you're doing is raising our taxes. And you'd say, well, we just, and you try to explain it and you lose before you even start. It didn't matter. It didn't matter the issue. So we are we in this era of that no matter what you kind of do in tax reform, unless you make it so dramatic in the sense of the reduction to the individual, that there's no belief out there. And it's just this kind of, well, that's just for those people are getting it. And the person who's you know, working every day in the sense of, you know, a nine to five job is saying they're never going to help me here. Is is that starting to happen here? I don't think Republicans who are supportive of this effort are banking on the expectation that voters are going to think that, you know, there's some benefit. Clear, well, the, the goal is to provide the benefit. Right. But I think if people if if the goal is met, um, it could very well look like a, an increase in voter sentiment in terms of the direction of the country or optimism about the country. Right. And, you know, the voters may be so partisan they don't want to concede that they're seeing a benefit, right. but they could also, you know, acknowledge that they feel a little bit better about the direction of the country, which, you know, in the last several years, there's been a very, very low sentiment in terms of the right track, wrong track question. Which actually, interesting when you mention that, when you think of this issue, tax reform, one of the data points that I see a lot now that's more of a predictor of what's happening is this right track, wrong track number versus reelect numbers or positive negatives. People feel bad who's ever in office, they're out. Yeah. Uh, it's very, and, and we've not, we've been in this slump of bad track or wrong track for some time. And so when you think about this issue, tax reform, which I know within the de- in, in the debate, there's an issue also, and maybe some response on this, is a chunk of those uh, savings are in dynamic scoring. Now, most people would say, outside of Washington, 
what is dynamic. Dynamic scoring to them is that one great basketball shot at the last minute of the basketball game, right? In this world, it's a different ball game. Brian, tell me, I mean, do you think people first understand dynamic scoring? And two, I think it's a trillion dollars or more in dynamic scoring. That's based on just growth. Is that real? So one, I don't think people understand dynamic scoring. I'm not sure that all members of Congress or even all members, <laughs> even all members of the, the budget committee, understand dynamic scoring. I mean, it's it's trying to put a score on the the behavioral change that that uh, that tax reform would have on them. And and I think your number is going to be a little different. I think it'll probably be like a 700 billion or even even less than that in dynamic scoring because the the Joint Tax Committee and CBO don't don't actually take into mo- use the models that that we Republicans wish they did. Um, but I, I I think just you know similarly I think this, the easiest way for dynamic scoring to be understood is you know like ex- excise taxes. We we raise taxes on cigarettes um, intentionally to change the behavior of smoking. So the thought is the more expensive smoking is, then the less likely you are to smoke. So really dynamic scoring is the same way. Like if we reduce the cost of labor, or we reduce the uh, the increase your wages uh, by taking less money out, then then there's going to be a dynamic effect of that. Then you have more money in your pocket to spend. So. So it's the it's the same concept as excise taxes. It's just in a, at a macroeconomic level. And I know there's a debate. When I was in the Senate, I actually voted when the Republicans wanted to make sure there was a uh, a change in how that worked. I actually supported that because I, when I was mayor, forty percent of our growth came from our tax revenue came from growth because we invested and had a result. It was a big number. But Democrats fundamentally have a heartburn over this because it's kind of a mystery number. Is that Yeah. A- uh, when I started off doing House Budget Committee work in the late 80s, we used to refer to this as the magic asterisk, which is basically you took all the cuts you wanted, all the spending you wanted, and you made them add up by filling in some number. You know, the 4% growth prediction is the way um, uh, Trump is doing it now. I think that the experience in Kansas is instructive because Sam Brownback had been a senator, believer certainly in big tax cuts, uh, was elected governor of Kansas and um, pushed for big uh, uh, tax cuts there that he claimed would produce this dynamic revenue effect uh, and billion-dollar surpluses. He was bolstered by a Heartland Institute study that I think showed that they would quickly um, uh be recording surpluses. What happened, of course, is he cut taxes, it cut revenues. In other words, the intuitive result was the real result. They wound up having to cut education funding massively. And after six years, Republican-led legislature wound up raising taxes over Brownback's veto because uh, the tax cuts had done so much harm. Not coincidentally, Governor Brownback is now waiting to be confirmed uh, for an ambassadorship one step ahead of the posse, basically, <laughs> because he's become very unpopular in Kansas. So dynamic scoring probably is accurate to some degree, but not to the degree to which it's it's normally touted. Can I go back and say something about a point Brian McGuire mm-hmm. made earlier? I think if you want to understand the modern Senate and the difficulty of legislating, one of the most instructive things you can do is look at the Finance Committee, just the roster, Forget proposals, just the roster today, and look at it in 1986. In 1986, the chairman of the Finance Committee was one of the most pro-choice senators, just to take an example of a liberal issue. On the minority side, the two most senior members were Southerners who um, were big advocates for the oil industry. Now, that liberal chairman was the Republican, and the oil state senators were Democrats. And you can go all the way down those rosters and see that the Democrats had more red state senators and blue state senators. 
And for the Republicans, it was the opposite. There were uh, New Englanders, West Coasters. And what that meant is that these senators were used to working together or crossing lines on all kinds of issues and even socially. Um, What separated them often was geography or the priorities of local industries like the extractive industries, not ideology, really. I'm not saying that that was a a better time in every way. It's partly how we got the tax code that we have now. But it was certainly much easier for people to work together. There just wasn't much of a Democrat-Republican distinction. What's happened more recently is that on the Democratic side, for example, the only uh, red state senator, I believe, is Senator McCaskill from Missouri, who is the most junior senator on the committee, uh, on the Democratic side, the newest addition. And the committee assignment, um, finance committee assignment, is so valuable that it's usually given to whoever most recently ran the party reelection committee. So what you're getting is basically the partisan heroes of either side placed on that committee. Well, naturally, that leads to a situation where it's just a little bit harder for the two sides to work together. And I think that's significant. What do we, what do we think on from the Republican viewpoint? You know, people... Well, I should say the commentators say that if the Republicans don't get this done, they're in big trouble in 18. Is that is that real or is that a myth that's pumped up by true statement? True statement. That was very quick. Uh, And you think that will have an impact to House and Senate? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons the Democrats are not interested in supporting it, because they know that as well as Republicans do. If Donald Trump is unable to deliver a significant legislative achievement in his first year, then the Republicans fear, and I think that they're right in fearing this, that they'll have very little to show the voters when they go back to the polls in November of 2018. I had, um, and I know we're at the end here, but I, had, I asked the same question at the end. Actually, I made a statement, and I'd be curious your guys' comments on this, and that is, uh, it, it does seem that there's always this kind of movement and then people wait and I say wait the Republican leadership for what will Trump like or not like in other words will he be for it I mean the 401k is a great example right it was part of it the next thing you know it's not a good idea because he tweets about it now creates this all controversy but it's still being discussed but it's now this controversy why what in and I play a little tournament poker, and I would venture to bet that I would enjoy playing against Trump because um, he's predictable. And that is, uh, at the end of the day, if you have a piece of legislation, he's going to sign it. It really doesn't matter. As long as there's a good show and tell, there's a good press conference, there's a lot of ribbon cutting and people around and very excited. So why doesn't he just, and I'd say uh, the, the Congress, just say, what do we want in passage and just do it, the leadership, knowing that at the end of the day, yeah, they're going to get some tweets, they're going to get some heartache, but plow through that. And I give credit to McConnell because that's kind of what he think. I think he's trying to figure out is how to move through this. But then he does make statements off and on about, well, wonder where the president will be. Who cares? He will sign a tax reform bill of any kind, tax cut of any kind. It could be a dollar cut. He will sign it and make it sound like it's a million dollars for all of us because that's what he does. So why why doesn't McConnell or Ryan just say this is what we're going to do and President at the end of the day you sign it? I, I think that's that in the end Am is, 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 is it? going to happen. I mean yeah. I think this this is a huge bill. It, it's it's you know healthcare impacted twenty percent of the economy. This is impacting one hundred percent of the economy. Right. This is a big everybody bill. touches. And I think that there are going to be things in it that that Paul Ryan doesn't like. And I'm going to think there's things in there that Mitch McConnell won't like, and I imagine there's things in there that Donald Trump won't like. Um, but there's 
the, on balance, uh, if a bill gets all the way to the president's desk and, and gets signed, I think that the all three of those will support a majority of what's in the bill. And, and I think Republicans are still trying to learn, like everybody else is, exactly who Donald Trump is and how to react. Right. Um, I mean, he's... Because it changes. It, it changes, and he's not he's not a known politician with a great track record or history that we can look back and say this is how he behaves in this this time. We and he's not an ideologue. Democrats understand him just as well as Republicans do at this point. Right. Mark, I think imagine if instead of uh, uh, being a public servant, instead of being mayor of Anchorage and a senator, you had spent those crucial years sitting at home watching The Apprentice over and over. You would have the perfect frame for Trump's behavior. He wants to surprise people. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants people to have to come to him to ask him for things. He wants to be able to put people down to build himself up. It's all reality TV tactics. Uh, You said not an uh, ideologue. I think that's true, but I think it goes beyond that. He wants to create the maximum amount of suspense. You need a reversal at the end of every episode. You need to lift up the people you knock down. You bring people into a room. One group thinks they're going to be declared the winner, and they're crestfallen when they find out that the other guys won. <laughs> you know, he's going to do that over and over. It doesn't really matter what the policy outcome is. It's all reality TV. Do you think, uh, to close on this, Brian McGuire, do you think that that personality is going to be significant in getting tax cut or reform? I know there's debate on what it should be called, uh, but is there, is that, is that the thing that's hanging out there, or is it just trying to get the alignment among the members of both uh, chambers in the party majorities aligned? What, what, is that is that an obstacle that you just kind of look to, at and go, oh, my God, we'll never get no, through that? I, I happen to think that there's actually, behind the tweets, a great deal of unity among Republicans right now. I think they're aligned on the politics of tax reform, I think, to a large degree, um, though not completely, obviously, aligned on many of the particulars. And so I think that, you know, there's there's a fair amount of progress here um, in terms of overcoming the dramatic elements of the president's kind of the personality. Noise out yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you all very much. Again, uh, from Brownstein Viewpoint, we have shows, hopefully, to the listeners. We have a great group of people here. Just as a sampling of the folks that are working on these issues. But tax reform, tax cuts, tax relief, whatever we call it, is going to be a hot topic for the next uh, several weeks as we move into the holidays. So, again, thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.